Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Hello everyone and thanks for joining us today for the 12th episode of Pebble in the Pond podcast, shining a light on mental health. Today's episode is with Camille Wilson. What happens when the person responsible for managing mental health cases is the one who becomes unwell? In fact, this was the case with a very own Association Ambassador Camille Wilson a lived experience advocate, founder of Grow Together Now, a social enterprise with the mission to change the way we see mental health in the workplaces. In this week's episode, Camille takes us on a journey of her personal experience, exploring the differences between how we think we should manage mental health compared to what it was like to be on the other end and what we can do about making the shift that needs to happen. It gives me great pleasure to have this conversation with Camille and we thank her for her courage and vulnerability in, in having this conversation with me. Camille, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for joining us. And boy, am I excited about this. Tell me about yourself. Tell me about from your, your journey, because I know we'll get into where you are now and what you're doing um, towards the back end. But if you just want to start from back in your schooling days, I believe. Yeah, of course. And tell us a little bit about, about yeah. your experience. So on an, in a nutshell, try and keep it as short as I can, but um, I'm, you know, in terms of my teenage years, I was any, like any other kind of teenage girl, too um, pretty anxious about trying to fit into school and life and everything like that. Um, and in year 11, I was diagnosed with major depression, which was, you know, a really intense and quite really confusing time for my life. Whereabouts were you going to school? Uh, Dane Bank. So I was went to a private girls' school okay. in South Sydney. Okay. Um, yeah. And so the, you went to the doctor, you were experiencing some symptoms? Yeah. So over a couple of months at school, I guess I started withdrawing a lot from my friends. I started going to my room a lot at night, closing the door. I engaged into some minor self-harm things just to be a bit confused about where I wanted to be. And mm-hmm. I think as a 16-year-old, you don't really, when things like that happen or you start having these really depressive thoughts, you just get confused of why they're happening. So I was probably engaging some minor self-harm just kind of as a, not as a tension-seeking thing, but just to go, what else do I do with these heavy emotions? Yes. Um, And then it actually, no one knew about what was happening until uh, quite a large outburst. My mum and I I told her I wanted to take my own life and I Mm -hmm. made a run for a balcony. Mm -hmm. Um, And very quickly from that point in time, she was aware of what was going on and this had been six to months to a year of not telling her not her not realizing the signs of depression mm-hmm. um, and took me straight to the um, GP that day. And that's when they said that you've got depression? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And were there 
was there an opportunity earlier than that for it to be recognized other than some mm. signals obviously that your mum yeah. but most people may not recognize that if they're not that well equipped yeah. with the training but tell me was there any other ways was there any other opportunities you had to voice how you're feeling I think in the current state of the world, we have an opportunity. I think there's more talking about it now. I think in how it was in the 1990s, mm. I was taking a lot of days off school. I was very late. So mm. I had the very clear signs something wasn't right. But I don't think that we were at a place of mental health intelligence or knowledge mm. that teachers or my mum or my dad were like, oh, maybe something's actually wrong. Mm. They kind of just thought she's a teenage girl. She's taking a lot of time off. She's being a hassle. Um, more than anything else until I opened up to the extent and then suddenly it became a, oh, shivers, this is actually something else. So you went to your GP. He mentioned the words major depression. Yeah. Uh, what happened there? Um, it was, to be honest, it was a bit of a whirlwind then. I went on straight on to medication, which is quite an uncommon thing for under 18 years old to get a medication. Um, and it was a trial and error process, as most people who go for medication know. Um, I went on the medication, I was quite unwell the medication in terms of the side effects, but essentially I went on it for about three to six months. It moderately worked and I went on, I came off them when I went to my HSC by myself because I didn't want to have them anymore. Um, and then I just continued on to life. And so you just weaned, weaned yourself off it? I weaned myself off it because I had this, I was a very determined young lady. Yes. I always have been, I'm a bit stubborn and driven at the same time and I decided if every other year 12 student can do this HEC without medication, then so can I. So I mm -hmm. took myself off them. Um, but in reflection, it wasn't so much that was the issue. It was I wasn't appointed psychologist longer term. I was given medication. I was given a psychologist appointment one session. And then I... One session to start with and that was it? Or one session every... It was designed, I think, to go for a longer period of time. But I didn't connect to my psychologist. So I decided not to go anymore after one session. I wrote him a very long letter about six months later and said, why didn't you reach out to me? You had a suicidal 16-year-old in your hands and you didn't reach out. Um, and then he replied, you know, he wrote a letter back and he wrote, actually, you are probably right. I should have had more of a duty of care to reach out to you. Thanks for the feedback. 17-year-old um, girl now. Wow. Yeah. So after the HSC, after you've taken yourself off medication, what then happened for Camille? Oh, goodness. Um, the uni. Yeah, so I went straight to uni. So I, I had a passion from then to go, I'm going to change the way psychology works, the way psychologists operate, because I felt like my oper my psychologist failed me, but I didn't think he had the right attitude around how it worked. He saw it as a job and he didn't see the 16-year-old girl in front of him that you know was um, looking at suicide. So I was like, I'm going to go do psychology and become a clinical psychologist. So I entered into uni in a Bachelor of Psychology to, to do that. And then as I progressed through uni, I learned about the fact that a workplace is actually a very large trigger or contributor to mental health. So along my pathways you all do during uni, you figure out what you're going to do. And I, I decided to pivot over to organisational psychology. And I, During your degree, you during decided. During my degree, yep. changed from clinical to organisational. Mm -hmm. So instead of becoming the solution to mm. the person who's already unwell, I'd actually be the person who can prevent people getting to the psychologist's room in the first place. So that was the kind that of, makes sense. yeah, um, but then after deciding to pivot to organisational psychology, I decided to go into HR instead because I was like, HR the other people who actually are in the business. They're the ones who are making change. And so I 
finished my degree after three years into the advanced science degree mm-hmm. and decided to go into HR. And so I moved to London and to do HR. <laughs> Went to London. So what, what uh, how old were you when you moved to London? I would 22. have been 21. Okay. Yeah. So... Mm-hmm. One-way ticket. And you went over there, one-way ticket to go to London uh, and continue your journey in HR. Yeah, that's correct. And how did you find that? Um, I think in reflection, I'm a, I don't realise what I do in my life when I do it is how probably how brave it was at the time. I didn't know anyone in England. I went on the one-way ticket. Uh, by like, yourself, no By friends. myself, no friends, no, no family. family. Yep. Um, given my history of mental health, you'd think it'd be a pretty crazy thing to do. It probably was. But I went over there because I... Heard along the grapevine that getting jobs in Australia were quite hard out of a degree, and I wanted to be internationally competitive at 21 years old. So I decided to move to London to get international experience. And I got there, and I was like, oh, you know, travel. And I was like, well, no, I'm, I'm here to do international experience in HR so I can change the world of mental health. And people thought I was crazy because I had no interest in actually going over there to travel or anything. I just wanted to follow my mission of changing mental health in HR. And so. So this is your 21, 22 yeah. or so at this point. You move there for these for these big dreams. People are shooting you down, I assume, and saying, yeah. crazy, what are you doing? Yeah. What, what did you do? Well, it's funny. I got there and I couldn't get a job in HR. Um, so I got a job at a, as a receptionist at a hair loss clinic and did that until I got a job and I just kept applying, kept applying to jobs in HR and eventually I got a it was £19,000 a year, which I think is about $35,000 Australian. Wow. Um, as my first job in the HR assistant at a, um, a media company. And I just, I kind of just started there, really. I started just meeting people, working in HR and learning about the, the trade or what you, yeah. So how long were you then in London for in total? In two and a half years. Two and a half years. Yeah. At the end of the two and a half years, you were still doing HR yeah. through that time. You reached a point where you were HR officer, what were you still... Yeah, I think I was about a HR administrator, HR, a junior HR advisor kind of okay. level. Uh, from a large company, small company? They were... Um, so Liberty Global was a relatively large global. company. Yeah, global, huge company. Okay. But um, then I moved to Ipsos Mori, which is a research company, and okay. they're relatively large in the UK. Um, they're in Australia, but they're very small in Australia. So you've come back then yeah. to Australia. Do you move back to Sydney? Yeah, move back to Sydney. Um, I, did. I went into straight into HR again. I got a job at Fletcher yep. Building, which is another large manufacturing company in Australia in HR. But at this point, I'd lost my idea of mental health, to be honest with you. Okay. I was, okay, HR's commercial, HR's all that business. And I kind of went, I kind of pivoted to the more driven side of my personality, be the top dog in mm-hmm. HR. I wanted to rise the corporate ladder and I, I really did get lost. I, I completely forgot about mental health mm. um, because I started making good money. I started engaging into long hours and I was doing well. I was performing really well. People thought I was this game changer in HR because um, my kind of positive attitude when I, do, when I do bring to work, I'm very you know high energy. Uh, and I did that in, in Australia and I just got a couple of jobs and I moved into the banking industry eventually. And um, that's kind of when it all started hitting downhill again. Yeah, so so on the outside, you're successful in your in yeah. your job. You're back home around your family and friends. You uh, were somewhat. Were you enjoying the pressures of the corporate life? Were the challenge that came mm. with that? And then things took another turn. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, so I started working at an American bank, but in the Sydney office. And I think the role started losing a little bit of clarity, a little bit of direction. And I was enjoying it on the outside. I had a perfect life in the, in the, in the sense that, you know, I was a mid-20s girl working in a good job, making a good salary. I was on a trajectory to be successful. So, you know, I had the you know Australian dream, you could call it. Everything going for me with great family. It was, you know, great friends. But as I moved through the career of HR and this job was very um, unfulfilling for me, I just started losing my way a bit. And I had no idea that these, over these years and all the years from London to back to Sydney, I was engaging in very high levels of anxiety. But I had no idea what anxiety was. I thought I had a history of depression, which meant I was fine. Like if I didn't have the depressive thoughts, I still had a good mental health, right? And so over this time, my anxiety started getting worse and worse and worse until... Anxiety to perform at work? Oh, anxiety about everything. Anxiety about dating, anxiety about yeah. performing at work, anxiety about family, mm. anxiety about friends. You know, I, I just constantly, I was always moving house. I, you know, I wasn't finding happiness mm. and I just didn't know how to ground myself at all I didn't know how to settle I just constantly kept going for the next thing hoping that was going to be my happiness mm. and then eventually every time I think got a thing it just didn't eventuate and I was like oh I didn't get the enjoyment out of that I thought I was going to get and so the anxiety would set in and I just go for the next thing that was available so you were unfulfilled yeah a hundred percent and you know when you young 20s mid 20s and you do have what you feel like you should have everything and everyone's you know, looking at you like you do have everything, you you kind of convince yourself you do. And you're like, this is what I'm meant to want, right? Mm -hmm. And then eventually, I guess, my body and my mind just said, no, nah, it isn't. And they kind of, it showed me in a very intense way when I was 26. <clears throat> and so you tried to take your own life again? So at 26, I had, it all started through <coughs> having quite a severe panic attack. Um, so I had a four-hour panic attack, which was great introduction to anxiety. And I was a, I went through a really big phase at the beginning, three months or six months denying it was anxiety. I thought <coughs> I had, you know, I thought I had a brain tumor. I thought I had a chronic illness. I was like, it's anything but mental illness, guys. This is very physical. And I kept trying to convince doctors that I wasn't mentally unwell. Mm. Um, that <coughs> went for, you know, I won't go into necessarily detail of it all, but it, it did transform over probably a period of a year. Okay. And eventually I went back on medication and that's when I was suicidal again. Um, actually because of the medication this time, not because of my condition. Because you were incorrectly it's diagnosed? A, it's a trial and error process when <coughs> you go on medication as someone with any kind of mental health condition. And I was given a medication that apparently I had a very severe adverse reaction to that not many people have. Like this drug... Um, in particular, has a 60% success rate for people who have it, and the percentage is quite small for those with such severe symptoms as suicidal ideation. I just got unlucky um, okay. in the process. So you, where are you working at this point? I was at Commonwealth Bank, so I was at you know, my dream job, what I thought was my dream job at this point, yep. um, in HR. In HR. And when these signs started, or when the, um, the behaviour, the symptoms started getting worse... Was it within the workplace? Was it personal and you weren't, you mm. weren't bringing it to work? Were you trying to hide it? What, what, how yeah. were you going through that? It was a huge mask the whole time. So moving from the American bank to the Australian bank, I was hoping that that would again be the solving puzzle piece to my mental health again. 
using an external thing to try and fix an internal problem. Yes. And I went into the workplace and given it was a um, a re- kind of remote working, hot desking environment. I wasn't familiar with that. It was very siloed, I felt, in my opinion, in my current um, situation. So I was experiencing in and out of the workplace. I was experiencing nausea, um, constant fatigue. I was lipped crying in cubicle bathrooms at work. And this is not to say that it was, I don't, I think the problem with workplace versus home mental health is that mental health is a such a broad thing. And I'm not confident to sit here ever to say it's a home thing or that mm. caused it or a workplace that caused it. <clears throat> it's just a state of mind and a workplace contributes and a home contributes. Mm-hmm. But that we don't have an understanding of the science that anything really is what the you know, true cause is. It manifests and it is triggered and contributed by the whole of our lives. Um, and that's important, I think, to remember when we come about these, these conversations. How was it addressed in the workplace? Or did you tell someone eventually? Did they just notice something was going on? Yeah, so I, um, again, I was, again, a very driven person. Don't want anyone to know. I regrettably didn't disclose when I joined um, the bank. And I, I probably should have. I know I, I know I should have. I should have been comfortable in a state of mind that I felt comfortable to say I'm not well. But over a period of time, I just hid it. And then it wasn't until I went on the medication that I had no choice but to, I came in quite an outburst. I, I told my manager that I wanted mm-hmm. to um, take my own life. Mm-hmm. And it really just from there, I actually, from that day on, I wasn't back in the workplace for another three to six months. So you, the manager that you told uh, took the adequate action to... Um, yeah, so I do. I talk about this a lot in terms of adequate action. My manager at the time did what they thought they should have. Mm-hmm. They got me on the phone to EAP. They put me in a meeting room and, you know, actually just at the Workplace Mental Health com- um, Symposium, I spoke about this disconnect. And what she'd done is she put me in this room, but completely empty room with 10 empty chairs, and she put a phone in my hand and there was a psychologist on the other line for the EAP. But what she didn't realize is that she left me completely alone in a room that was actually made of glass walls. And so everyone who walked past could see me. And for me, that moment of time is that she did everything the policy told her to do. Mm. She followed the procedure. She did what she thought was right. And it was right in the essence of the policy and what she was educated on. But what the disconnect was, was actually seeing the world or what was happening from the person living the experience. And that, I think, is one of the biggest challenges and problems we have in workplaces right now in addressing mental health. So, so the, the procedure was, was in effect, was, was happening, but yeah. the disconnect was there was no compassion or empathy. Yeah. Uh, is that what you're saying is missing? It was the actual connection, isolating someone in a glass room whilst they're on a phone to a somewhat of a stranger. Yeah. Um, no offence, because obviously they were trying to help. No, me. no, that's... But, I mean... That's the yeah. whole essence of it. Like, they did the right thing, and there's no um, there's no blame at all in a situation no. like that. It's, it's purely that managers and employees who are trying to support someone else do not have the, the perspective and the experience to understand how potentially it feels like to be in that person in that room. And that gap is what disconnects workplaces and understanding how to make true and genuine change in mental health in the workplace. Which points to a lack of training, education yeah. and awareness. Yeah. This. And a lack of lived experience in the room when you make the strategy. When you make a strategy, when you create the mental health action plan, 
who in the room is someone who's had lived experience in the workplace? And they're the people who should be advocating and educating the others who haven't got that experience. So it's like creating a, a physical mental, a physical plan for health from someone who's never experienced any sort of ill physical health. And mm. um, we wouldn't expect that. So why do we do it differently for mental health? So, so after that incident occurred uh, and, and the manager did what was right for the time, what then happened? So I went um, immediately after that kind of phone call to the psychologist. Um, they sent me home. I then went immediately to the GP to say, you know, this medication isn't working for me. Um, and it was contemplated whether to put me into the inpatient of the hospital, local hospital. But I was then put as an acute outpatient for the hospital as under 24-hour care of my parents. And really from there, it was a recovery process. I was off work from that point. Um, How long were you off work for? Officially for six months. I tried to return on a number of occasions, but it didn't work um, well. And I had to go back off work um, and get support again. And when you went back to work, was it with Commonwealth Bank still? Yeah. Okay. And the integration, reintegration back into your job was 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 fine? Was it challenging? Yeah, I, again, was it... it was again by the policy, by the procedure. And again, we didn't think about how it was for someone living through the experience. And I think this is what happens across the board. This is not just one company. This is people come back and they get scared and they go, oh, we'll just give her a little bit of work to do. We won't give her too much. We don't want to stress her out too much. So they gave me like the most minuscule piece of work to do and I was completely utterly bored given I'm, you know, a relatively active mind. So I went in there and I, I, my mind which wasn't stopping on anxiety on all the things that were going through my head. And because of that, I was still isolated. I was still in an environment where I wasn't connecting with other people. And I just got backwards again and I went back out of the workplace as soon as I, within a week or so. Yes. So a combination of the right medication, rest, what, what, other, what other things were you doing to try and get better? Yeah, so for me, I was attending, I was going to two psychologist appointments a week as well as one psychiatrist appointment to completely get me on board of kind of really tracking my progress. Um, the first stage of my recovery was keeping me alive. I remember my psychologist saying, Camille, I don't ask of anything you right now. I don't want to teach you tools, resources, anything. I just want you to keep yourself alive for me. And while this, we get this medication sorted, once we do that, I can start teaching you tools to manage these types of thoughts you have. So the first probably month and a half was keeping myself out of, you know, that situation, out of the unfortunate circumstance that happens to so many Australians every single day. Um, once I got that past that stage, it was through CBT, mindfulness-based stress reduction and the combination of medication that got me in a place where I could start learning how to think correctly or you know more healthily again um, that took you know that's been happening for a year and a half two years since that exact point in time it's definitely a really long process and probably still happens to this day I still have bad weeks bad days where my severe symptoms take over me again how uh, effective was the approach with psychiatrists psychologists was was it enough was it was it a, a big part of the reason that got you through that period yeah, 100%. So my GP, um, I went to a few GPs when I first ever started the anxiety process. This is when I had the panic attack. I was diagnosed with an atypical migraine at the emergency department. I was diagnosed with vertigo. I was diagnosed with so many random things. And eventually this random GP from a medical center said, I think you have anxiety. And 
from that point, it was a very disjointed process of trying to find the right GP, the right psychologist and the right psychiatrist. But I found this amazing GP, um, Dr. Shirazal um, in Sydney, and he really was just such a caring person that he's like, I know we only have technically 10 minutes, but I will sit with you as long as I need to sit with you to make sure that you leave this room safely. Um, and he gave me the perspective that it can work. I reached out to him and said, can medication help? Can these people, psychologists, psychiatrists help? And he had full faith in the system. And it sounds crazy, but that's all he knew I needed to do to give me hope that I could get better. So I, he actually actually said to me in the doctor's appointment, I bet my house on it. If I don't get you better, you can have my house. <laughs> wow. Um, and you know what? He's been such an integral part of my process, mm. which I know is not the experience of many people with GPs in this mental health story, but he was such an integral part. And he is still the point of contact I have when things are starting to go a bit wary. wary. Um, equally, the psychologist was also a significant factor I was referred by him to this amazing psychologist who, again, put me first before anything else. She was caring. She actually really wanted me to get better. And I think that was a different experience to what I had previously with multiple other psychologists. So I think the combination, particularly of those two, were of the caring factor and made me really feel like, A, they gave a crap about me and that there was hope were the two significant things at that level of severity for mental illness that kept me going to kind of the next stage, which was proper recovery and getting better. Yes. Tell me, as a result of this experience, what what did it, did it reignite that fire in you to then go out <laughs> back to chase your dream to help yeah. people um, preventing mental health? 100%. So I came to this journey, I went to the journey, I started recovering, don't get me wrong, I didn't, it wasn't overnight and it wasn't in a moment's time, I actually, you know, because I couldn't return to HR technically full time, I was like, what on earth am I going to do? I trained to be a life coach. I became a yoga teacher. I did all these random things. I got a job in a bookshop um, and all these things happened that I was like, I'm just trying to find my meaning again because I lost it. I'd lost myself in this mental illness. So it wasn't until actually I was, you know, it's not a funny story, but I was actually fired from the bookshop. I'd been employed for three weeks casually and I managed to get myself fired somehow. I know how, but yeah, I got myself fired. And I left this 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 um, meeting with the CEO of the company and I was like, you know what? This is what the problem is with mental health in the workplace. And I'm sick of sitting on the sidelines watching it happen time and time again. I'm gonna go back into the world of hate um, back into the world of mental health in terms of dressing the workplace, but this time I'm gonna do it on my own terms. I'm not gonna do it in HR, which I think is an archaic traditional area of business still. Um, and I'm gonna go into my own business. I'm gonna actually make a difference in a really tangible way through this lived experience lens. And then that then gave you the drive and the focus and the willingness to go out and take a risk to start your own. Yeah. T tell us about that. Yeah, so it's, it's been a huge journey and I started out just really nutting out the problems I see in the mental health system. And don't get me wrong, this is, there's, a, there's a lot of issues in the mental health system outside and inside the workplace. But I really came back to what do I want to achieve and how, do I want to, how can I achieve that well? Um, because when you start out these kind of things, you do have so many ideas and you want to change the world and you want to do it in every little um, cake you can find. You want to be able to put your finger in it and help that process. But really over a period of time, I've just had to learn to find what my strengths are, to really see what organisations need and what they're ready for. I think readiness for organisations is such an important part of mental health conversations. 
where we're so quick to think, oh, every organization needs this full comprehensive mental health program. But if a company's never done anything before, then maybe we need to take a different approach and maybe you need to be patient. Maybe we need the relationships and actually be ready when the workplace is ready to actually change mental health. So it's been a journey of developing and changing and evolving lots of workshops and talks and um, all the kind of fun stuff and meeting lots of new people. Yeah. So I've, yeah, I've had, I've been incredibly fortunate to go from where I was, what, two and a half years, actually, it'd be two years exactly, 2017, that I was in the situation where I was under full-time care of my parents, um, outside, as an outpatient, acute patient. So oh, congratulations. Thank you so much. <laughs> and, you know, you got to pinch yourself sometimes to think that that is where you were and, you know, to, to see so many other young people as well who go through what I went through. I hope that they get the resources that I was so fortunate to get um, because a lot of people don't get the resources they need and that's one of the problems. So you're going into companies, you're going to workplace environments to say whether it's from the scale of introducing something slowly or full-scale introduction of mental health policy. And uh, Tell me about the different approach that you take because I know that the the old way of doing things wasn't really servicing or wasn't really doing the person yeah. justice um, or, or wasn't really solution focused. It was isolating and it was really broken. Um, but they did the best they could at that time. But tell me about how you're going about this differently. Yeah. So at the moment, if you look at the kind of idea of mental health works, I think where our solutions are currently sitting is from a, a flawed view of mental health. So we look at mental health and on one side, if you look at it kind of a left side, right side, on one side, we have this concept of mentally healthy employees. So they're all the people who essentially aren't saying they're not okay. And on the other side, we have our mental illness employee, mental illness, mental ill health, mental ill health employees who are saying, I'm not okay. And if you look at our solution selection, we actually, our solutions are framed around that same view. So on the left-hand side, we have our wellness initiatives. We have the things like yoga, meditation, mindfulness, we have all those sessions which are designed to support those mentally healthy employees. And we hope we're trying to capture the others, but we're probably not. And then the solution on the other side, on the right-hand side, is we have peer support, employee assistance programs, and crisis support. Equally, both very important. But what's happening is we're missing this massive gap in the middle and this massive gap of employees who are potentially sitting on the edge of needing extra support or in mental ill health, um, who aren't quite reaching these wellness initiatives that we think are really important. Um, so what I am really, I guess, quite focused on is a very genuine preventative solution going, how are we addressing these kind of no man land employees, which sit in the middle, who aren't quite anywhere and actually instilling confidence in them and the, the courageous mindset in them to go, well, actually there's four pillars of what I need to do in terms of mental health. There's being knowledgeable about it, actually understanding it in a much more practical and genuine way, rather than just these big stories and these lifeline beyond blues it's not to disregard their work but there is there's a lot more to mental health and these big stories and these big mental ill health kind of situations it's a spectrum it's a continuum and then once you have that knowledge you go okay i get anxiety now i understand it's catastrophizing i understand it's asking what if but now i need to know how to self-apply that i need to know how to take that knowledge and put it in myself and understand when it's happening in myself and that kind of gives your employees the actual ability to go okay I get now where I'm at with mental health. I know where I might sit on this continuum. And it gives you a chance of what you could call a kind of reflection or a moment of actually being more in a position of 
an opportunity to make a change for yourself. But then, you know, you, you keep going on and go, okay, well, you have your self-awareness, but what are you going to do then? And that's when it moves into the third pillar of courage. You kind of need the courage to either cha- choose the option of making a difference to your own life or someone else's life, or you choose the option to ignore it and you follow the fear that we've got so instilled in us through the mental health systems. And then you finally go into what I think is one of the most important parts of these pillars is the future-proofing our organisations to go, okay, we're going into a future of work. We have agile working, we have remote working, we have hot desking. How on earth have we instilled our mindsets to actually be resilient to these different types of working? And what are we doing to install, I guess, these skill sets of going, how do we deal with big levels of data? How are we handling decision-making under pressure? How are we handling the increase in aggressive customer service because our millennial generation wants more. You know, our businesses want more for less. How are we instilling genuine skill sets that are going to make us more resilient to the future of work that's coming right our way very quickly? So these four pillars of, you know, in a very nutshell, are the kind of future of what we should be doing in terms of mental health. And it's not a, a case of looking at, again, looking at what we've already done in terms of just throwing a policy in there and throwing some mental health first aiders. They're checkboxes they're not actually addressing the problem at its hand. Mm. That's really, that's really interesting. And you came up with all that framework. Yeah, well, it's all from a, you know, to be honest with you, it's yeah. all from a lived experience perspective. I, you know, if you can look at every single point on my journey of when I got unwell, mm. I can tell you where, where each of these little circles I look at, these pillars actually have sat. Yeah. And at every point I had a choice as an individual and the company and workplaces I've worked at have had a choice to either, you know, we both have choices. And we, we keep choosing this ignore, ignore, ignore because we're so scared of it. We, we instill education through fear and we tell people you have one in four chance of getting a mental illness. And it's, it's a really flawed way of education. And so if you look at it from a lived experience point of view, there is so much opportunity. We're just not opening our eyes to it at the moment. Well, you're doing an incredible job. Thank you. Uh, and what an incredibly smart woman you are. Tell me about the sort of clients that you're going in and helping them do this stuff, or is it is it medium-sized businesses, corporates? Yeah. Uh, who, who's who's the clientele that you're going in to really help with this? So it's actually a mix right now, and I think mostly it's sitting around probably the large organisations because I think they have the ones who have funding. I find the biggest challenge companies are facing is that not looking at investment. They have an investment for your EAP, and you have investment for everything else in your business that makes a profit. Mental health, I believe, meant companies are still sitting at that. That's a draining factor. That's a, a point in my business that's going to take money away and not put money back in. And as your senior executive who's never experienced, you know, mental health, how are you going to justify putting the money into it? So I think at the moment it's mostly large companies that are putting in this, you know, checkbox system. But I actually don't think many companies are going at the genuine, tangible level of making real change in mental health which is just the start of an industry, to be honest with you. We're just starting. And, you know, I would encourage companies to start looking forward and start identifying those innovative ways they can start addressing. Yeah, be proactive in getting yeah. uh, something going on that's effective and something that's not just a fashion. Yeah. It's not just a fad that's going to last for a month or because it's the in vogue, it's the flavour of the thing. Yeah. It, we need something that's long-term, right? Yeah. Uh, and something that can check in with people progressively because it's not one and done with a survey or a diagnosis mm. uh, to see I, I assume it would be uh, it'd be more long term and yeah. regular checks is that correct 
Yeah, hundred percent. And you can do. There's so many. There's so many models out there you can use that are really effective. And I was actually speaking at the workplace mental health symposium. So these incredible ladies talking about reflective supervision, about when you supervise and you manage, how much opportunity reflection with each other as peers around each other actually has an opportunity to learn. And there's so many easy, cheap ways of doing it. Honestly, there is mm. in mental health. It's just companies need to, like you said not see it as a checkbox, not see it as a thing they've just got to do and it's a fad or it's a trend and go, actually, this is not just the right thing to do, but it's going to be good for my business and it's a community and societal and a workplace issue that needs to happen. Um, and I want to be the company that does it first. Tell me, tell me how important it is for lived experience, voice, input, engagement to be in these programs or these policies that need to be implemented throughout workplaces? Well, absolutely critical. You know, you you can't build anything without the person at the end of the day who knows what it feels like to experience it. And, you know, I've come from HR in the sense, and I I know what it was like. I experienced it as a teenager. Even in my early 20s, after experiencing depression as a teenager, I still probably didn't really understand the impact of lived experience. It wasn't until my adulthood and probably more meaningful experience that I was like, oh my goodness, like this this is such an important perspective for people to understand. So I think if you're missing that, you're really missing the entire problem because you don't know what it feels like. And this mental health problem isn't a tangible problem. It isn't like we've got, you know, a broken table, we know how to fix it. We've got a obscure, complex, misunderstood and unknown topic sitting in front of us. And the only way to put clarity into that topic is to get the people who've been there to give us clarity and go, okay, that's what it feels like. That's what it's like in reality. And that's your actual way you think when you're in that situation. Therefore, we're going to build a solution around that instead of building a solution and expecting it to solve the problem that's at hand. Do you feel like programs out there are adequately doing this with a living experience perspective? Um, in terms of the current product solutions that are offered or in yeah, terms through, of through the workplace stuff or, or through, um, through mental health generally in Australia, do you feel like the models that are that are out there do you feel like it's 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 got the element the of of living living experience yeah. in there enough or do you think the voice is is present and yeah i i don't think there's enough being done in what mental health to know if enough lived experience voices in it so if you look at the victorian royal commission you know you have honor easley which is an amazing advocate in melbourne she's involved in that and you look at that going yes we've got it right but then you look at all these workplaces building these programs and strategies and you have commercial businessmen making resilience apps and they have no idea what it's like to live an experience of mental illness or mental ill health. Mm-hmm. And they say, oh, this solves for that. I'm like, have you got anyone who understands what it's like to go through it? They're like, oh, no, we've got customers. I'm like, but have those customers had those experiences? So I think, you know, in policy, I like to think that we might be getting better and I, I hope that there are getting becoming more people to speak up and going, actually, I want to make a difference and I want to be a voice for the for the people who maybe don't feel as comfortable to speak up, including myself, you know. Um, I advocate because there's a lot of people who you know, come to me going, I don't want to speak up yet, I can't speak up, can you do it for me? Um, and then, then I think workplaces, I definitely think we do struggle with incorporating lived experience. I think there's still discrimination, I think there's still a fear, and I don't think, I think the mental health strategy programs, wellness initiatives all sit within potentially HR as well. And that's a very selective of people. There's no diversity in thought at all in that process. Mm. Um, so de- there's a lot of opportunity, I think, in 
A, encouraging lived experience people to speak up and those lived experience people, therefore, to meet them there and go, I'm ready now to talk. What's what's the biggest challenge that you're facing with trying to execute the plan uh, to go into more companies? What's Is it the lack of funding? Is it the lack of leadership that's open to this sort of thing? Um, is it the timing's off? What's What's been your biggest challenge? Uh, biggest challenge as an individual, you know, building a business is definitely funding and investment from companies. They all like the idea. If I talk to anyone, it's like, I love what you do. Your, your product's amazing. Oh, but I've got to open my wallet. That's really hard to do. I don't know if I can find that funding in the company. So 100%, I think funding is a huge issue for any kind of social initiative or change factor when it comes to this kind of stuff. Um, but in saying that, I think there are some other challenges. I think leadership buy-in um, in terms of, because we've lived in a world where people who live with mental illness haven't made it to the leadership table, no one at the top is actually seeing it as an issue. I speak to so many leaders like, I don't, I don't have a mental health issue in my organisation. I don't have any mental ill health. We have a couple cases. Now, if you look at statistics and you're looking at you have 5,000 employees, I'm sorry to say, but you have a mental health problem at your workplace potentially. Um, it may not be obvious. People aren't speaking up. But mental health is a continuum and you if there's one in four people who are experiencing mental ill health, then there is definitely more than one person speaking up who is experiencing it, who isn't speaking up. So I think perspective at the top level is a, a, a massive problem for not just mental health. You know, if you look at women, if you look at LGBTI, any of those discriminated, um, you know, ethnicity, you look at any discriminated group, they're not at the top right now. And I think that will change with, you know, future of work. We're pushing more women into leadership jobs. We're pushing more women allowing more women to the leadership mm. positions. We're more open about LGBTQI. We're, you know, being conscious of diversity in a room. They will end up in leadership teams, I hope. But right now, I think we're almost at the tail end of the traditional archaic tr leadership team still sitting in that room going, no, 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 it's not important yet. Yeah. And so your, your programs that you're doing, that's focusing on mental health in general, all encompassing of inclusivity, diversity, depression, anxiety, just different signals on how people are feeling. Is that what it's? Yeah. And the way you treat each other. So in the first part, definitely, I think at the moment, my focus probably is sitting there in a very general way in the sense that I think we're not there yet to be open up enough about mental health for me or anyone to really start targeting specific groups such as anxiety, depression, complex mental illness. Mm. I think we still need to get past this awkward, blurry part that sits within this fear factor. But definitely, and I know what I want to get into, you know, anxiety is what rules my life. It always, it, it, now I realise it always has. So I definitely hope that one day I could specialise or particularly work in the space of just anxiety because it is an area which I think is so prevalent and it's getting worse with, you know, multiple streams of communications and apps and all this kind of fun stuff. Our brains are going a thousand miles an hour and we just don't know how to stop. Um, and I would love to that to form and evolve really into more of an anxiety piece once we can get past this really general conversation at mental health. The work you're doing is obviously clearly inspiring. The, the amount of, of people and the potential for you to help and assist with these sorts of programs is really amazing. I mean, even though if you can prevent one person from yeah. experiencing something, that's a, a really big win, but um, to take your experience and use it and develop your own program to then go on and help other people for the better is truly something that's 
admirable. So obviously we thank you and, and thanks very much for doing that. Thank we you. need more people like you that are <laughs> out there um, because there's not enough of them. That's, that's the truth. There's not enough yeah. people out there from living experience that are getting out there. They resonate with people a lot more, but it's also a team effort. And you see the future of, of your work going. Oh, I could go anywhere. I'm the thing about. I think the important thing is you start a business in the 21st century. You have to be pretty open about where your business goes. Flexible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it changes so quick, right? It, it does, and you learn. I think in the space of mental health, where we are still learning so much. You know, I'm fortunate to be a student at the Brain and Mind Center at Sydney Uni, so I'm learning. The, you know, the breakthrough research as it comes through. So I'm I'm very fortunate to be seeing things like that come through, and that change that makes you pivot quickly because. Mm. If, someone, if you find out a peer support framework doesn't work suddenly, which, you know, at the moment it does, and that's what research is showing us, and it's evidence-informed, but we may not know that there's an extra element to that. And we've got to mm. keep moving with the times because mental health is an under-researched place. It is an area which has been negatively associated for such a long time that we are increasingly learning more about it, and we've got to keep up with that. So I don't know where it's going to evolve. I'm excited to see what the future holds for um, it and me and the whole world of mental health because um, there is so much opportunity. I'm so excited to actually see where it takes us because, yeah. Well, I'm excited. I can clearly tell the enthusiasm and the passion that you have. Tell me about where who's been a, a key influence on your life? Um, the whole life? Or just the- well, it could be personal, professional. Who, who's been someone that uh, you looked up to? It's an interesting question because I wouldn't say there's one single person that comes to mind. It's definitely a combination of different... Collaboration of different people. So each person I have in my life has taught me a different thing. So my partner has taught me patience mm. and being quiet for once in my life. <laughs> um, and I think that's important in mental health because yeah. you reflect more. And I've always put this 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 front on and he's he's an introvert and I'm an extrovert and he's taught me... No, Kim, well, you can actually not go to that networking event or you can actually, you know, chill out after that session or maybe you don't have to do that perfectly. So he's been a very, um, you know, almost a logic mindset that I, I lack in. I lack in logic. I'm much more emotionally driven. So he's the, the logic side of me. But then I also have my best friend, Stacey, who, you know, instills a very strong level of empathy in me because she's constantly providing me empathy. empathy. So she's always teaching mm. me that as well. And, you know, I have... You know, I guess business leaders in some respect who are, and that I you look up to and I mm-hmm. am inspired by, but I think in my as a I'm a very emotionally driven and very mm-hmm. um, you know values driven person. I look back to my family and friends mm-hmm. who have been the guiding fire for me my entire life because they're the ones who get my my head above water, um, and they're the ones who've seen me at my worst and haven't judged me and haven't criticized me. And all they said is, "When you're ready to get back up, we're here for you both ways." Mm-hmm. So. Just take your time and we're here for you. You're, so, a, you're a lucky woman. I'm very, very fortunate. And the, the sad thing is, this is the sad, the sad reality of it is, is that there are so many people who aren't lucky and aren't fortunate. And that's why it makes me so passionate about my, what mm. I do because I recognize I haven't had the worst of it. Um, despite the fact that I've had it bad um, in some regard, there is definitely a lot of other people who haven't had access to treatment who haven't had information, knowledge or care from people. They haven't had, you know, they've had to come from cultures that maybe don't accept mental illness in just a cultural aspect or a belief aspect. So there is so much opportunity outside of the group I sit in. Um, And I'm fortunate, but I want to use that fortunate that I've had to be able to get better so quickly or not quickly, but 
to this extent um, to be able to use my knowledge to go, okay, well, how can I help the people who aren't there yet or mm. aren't in communities that do get what I got? Um, well, I think you're going to be a super success in, in doing this because clearly you've got the passion and the drive to, to do this and uh, what an inspiration uh, and such an influence, influential figure. I mean, to have Thank someone you. to go out there and do this actively and uh, and try and get there in, in the early stages and take action and help create an ongoing plan and a, and a program that can be implemented to make a difference long term is something to to really uh, be proud of. So we're, we're glad you're out there doing it. Is there any book or anything you've read that you, you can recommend some uh-huh. listeners? Is there any? Yes. Got, yes? Well, oh, shoot, my gosh. I'm a book nerd. I love reading. Tell us reading. a couple of your favorites. Oh, so many. So books definitely. I'm not much of anything else kind of person, but my top books would be The Lost, um, Lost Connections by Joanne Hari, I think his name is. Okay. Oh, just mind-blowing book around um, the real cause, underlying cause of depression, but it's all about connection, and the storytelling in the book is just absolutely incredible. Um, the other book I'd recommend is Full Catastrophe by John Kabat-Zinn. He's a pioneer of mindfulness and they're massive books. So don't be afraid if you um, <laughs> see it and you're like, oh my goodness, that's huge. <laughs> it is easy to read. It's He's just got so much knowledge in terms of mindfulness-based stress reduction and it's applicable to everyone. And I loved it. absolutely loved that book. And the third one I recommend is um, The Five Invitations by Frank Otazarski and I can never say his name, Osteskizi. Anyway, you'll find it. But he basically, he owns a Zen hospice, which is the thing called the Zen hospice, which is where they have assisted assisted dying in um, the hospital. And he, so he's been this huge process for decades, helping people go through that process. And it really is just about life. It's about these five invitations he has about living life to the fullest. And it's not necessarily just about, it's not mental health as a society or policy, but for me, it's a book that really teaches people to be reflective. It teaches people to be in the moment and open up to opportunity. And I think this is what, if you look at the five invitations, I think it's what we need in the world of mental health. So, wow, that's what a, what a great suggestion. Books. A great collection <laughs> of books. There you go. If you, if you haven't got those books or read them, get out there. Despite the size, they're actually really well <laughs> worth it. So uh, thank you for those little nuggets of gold, Camille. Tell me... Uh, What's your favourite karaoke song? I hate karaoke. You don't do it. Um, I'm an anxiety person. <laughs> Why would I get up in front of people and sing? At home? I mean, do you sing no, something? No, I... Oh, if I had to, it'd be Uptown Girl by Ooh, Westlife. Good one. That, that was a good version. I like how I'm singing I, I even though I hate I've been known to do that one as yeah. well on the occasion. Uh, tell me about, uh, is there anything that you've, had a strong belief in that you previously or since changed your mind is there anything you used to think uh and after with your experience or your the direction of your life you've all of a sudden thought well gee it's not what i what i thought it was and and maybe the belief i had about that was 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 incorrect or was, yeah is there anything actually, in particular there is and i i this is a, a big one for me to admit because i really haven't um kind of mentioned it much before but i essentially um, I don't know if I want to admit it. Um, the, the gender equality debate, I, for a long time, didn't actually think it was that much of a thing. I was like, come on, guys. You know, it's just because women are biologically designed to, and this is coming from a woman. Hmm. I was like, we're designed to have the children. We're meant to do this, this, and this. And I went to a lecture at Lendlease from this guy who runs uh, um, women initiatives at um, Lendlease. 
And he just blew my mind because he, he told me about opportunity. He told me, you look at engineering and you think, oh, so I'm basically, if you look compared to my life, I've gone from a girl's school to a psychology degree to HR, very female dominated in areas of life. So I've never felt like an odd one out. But if you compare that to a girl, let's say went to a co-head school and then she went into engineering degree and then she became an engineer at Lendlease or whatever company it might be, that experience for that person is very different and your opportunities change. For me, going into a psychology degree, I was the majority. For her, going to an engineering degree, she's a minority and she's suddenly feeling already isolated. And that, that impact of isolation as we go through our lives actually impacts that woman going into her workforce, again, being the minority or going into work sites, being the minority. And I never appreciated that the perspective, just because I'm in a female dominated area that, and I thought it wasn't an issue, doesn't mean that there is not another situation where you might experience it completely differently. And I, I think I just really struggled and I think it taught me perspective going, you, it takes a lot to take yourself out of your own box and to go, hey, People live their life a little bit differently. Hey, mm. how has someone else experienced this? And it was a pretty, you know, big moment for me in the sense that I was pretty average about this woman debate. And then I was like, oh my goodness, yeah. I feel sorry for that girl going to engineering now. <laughs> and I never thought about it because no one ever triggered the plant and like, no one put the seed in to think going, maybe think about the perspective of someone else or experience of someone else. So ever since then, I've, I've been a lot more conscious when we talk about diversity, we talk about women or LGBTI. Mm. I start to go, okay, I'm not those things. I'm not in those careers or in a male-dominant area, but how would have I felt if I was? I'm not an MC minority. I'm in a majority in Australia. So how would have I felt if I was in the minority? LGBTI. Putting yourself in their shoes. Yeah, it's mm. it's huge. And, you know, I think it's a huge lesson people need, need to hear and learn more about is perspectives mm. and being conscious of that as they go through and make decisions. It's being comfortable with the uncomfortable. Because if you don't do that, you're not making change. Well, that all makes sense. And other than that last piece of, of advice, is there any other advice you have for our listeners? Any other piece of advice? That's a big question. Um, I have lots of pieces of advice for everyone and anyone in the world. But I think I always talk about this thing called little moments. And I think that every time we have a life or we live life, every single day we have a moment to consider something. And a lot of the time we're so fast paced, we forget about the moments and we only see events, milestones and happenings that make us upset. If we just take a moment to go through our day and just try to identify the little moments that will make a difference to either our own day or to someone else's day. And obviously, particularly I talk about mental health. But if you have a chance to make a difference, choose to make a difference. Take a moment to don't put the rubbish in the wrong bin. And if you see someone who's upset, go ask them if they're okay. You know, Take your bravery, use your courage, stand up and actually make a difference because every moment you have an opportunity to do that. Well, uh, couldn't get any better words than that. And talk about courage and vulnerability. Obviously, Camille, we really appreciate having you here on the podcast and sharing your journey with us. Uh, I'm sure it's going to serve many people that listen to this and your journey is an inspiration to many. And the work you're doing is, is truly inspirational. So we thank you for that. Lastly, is there any way people can get in contact with you? Yeah, of course. Um, so LinkedIn is my, my LinkedIn. main place, Camille Wilson. Otherwise, camille.wilson at growtogethernow.com is my email. Um, you can do that too. So Easy. 
That was the easiest. Well, there you have it. Get in touch with Camille Wilson. I'm sure she'll be able to help you in some way. And we appreciate you having on the show. And thanks very much. And it's been really good fun. Thanks for sharing. Awesome. Thank you so much too. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au. And be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening, and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.